Before Make the Game, there was Lost Cast, a podcast I ran with my friend and Lost Decade Games co-founder Jeff Blair, who was my guest on this episode. We discussed Jeff's work at mobile game company Plato, Jeff's roguelike games, our game design terminology, and of course, when Jeff and I get together, we always talk about entity component systems. This episode was recorded remote and in person, so apologies for the sound issues, but enjoy the meowing cats and comfortable conversation. You're listening to Make the Game with Matt Hackett. Jeff Blair. Welcome to JeffCast. Welcome to JeffCast. I mean, wait. How long has it been? Oh my gosh. It's over years. a year. Over. At least a year. I looked and I think it was over. It wasn't quite two. Since what? Since I think we did Make the Game, <laughs> the name of a Lost Cast episode. Not, right. Not this show, Make the Game with Matt Hackett. Well, I was going to say there's two milestones here, right? One is that we haven't podcasted together since the Make the Game episode since of Lost that. Cast. Yep. And we haven't seen each other in person since right. pre-pandemic, probably. We were trying to figure that out it might have been a, uh, a plato summit and did you ki- did you did you witness that killer segue that i always <laughs> ruin by pointing out <laughs> how's it going that plato my dude uh it's going great yeah um i love plato it's a fun place to be and you know i think we're working on some cool games and stuff we're working on some multiplayer um some real-time multiplayer games and there's a lot of other uh like cool platform stuff that i've been working on personally around content publishing so like uh if you think about things like steamworks and uh the itch.io dashboard um like that's kind of the direction that we're trying to push some of our publishing tool uh tool chain um to really allow things like second party or third party developers um and also just you know producers right like another one of the things that's that's kind of transformed at plato since you were there um is the content pipeline like we have a whole bunch of artists uh, we have a whole bunch of producers um, and people are putting out game content on a weekly basis that aren't engineers um, nice. so they'll be adding like pool cue skins and they'll be adding you know match monsters content and they'll be adding all this stuff um, and that largely happens like outside of the engineering team um, there's obviously you know we're you know it's a work in progress so um, we have uh, you know still a, some engineering you know involvement to release the games to prod um, but like by and large the producers can test all their content themselves test it on stage and so I've been doing a lot of work trying to kind of improve that whole process um, you know with like new game publishing pipelines and things like that. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Uh, yeah, full disclosure, I was at uh, Plato for quite a while, uh, five years. Yeah. Uh, helped you guys make a lot of games, worked on library stuff a lot. Um, I, I feel like uh, I, I have friends actively there, multiple friends actively there. I'm like, uh, I no longer work there, but I'm rooting for you um, yeah. from, from over here. Oh, we appreciate from, it. From, from right here, actually. <laughs> right here in Colorado Springs. That's right. <laughs> you're worldwide. Yeah. Um, very cool. I think that you're a good choice for that. Like, that's like, such a good position for you because um, that's like it's the role you had at Lost Ticket Games you were like the keeper of the keys I would go to you for everything right I'd be like Jeff where where is this SSH key where's this token how do I make a build right why is this bug how do why what's, this what's a depot <laughs> what Java is it Java or Java script Jeff hell no but like you've always been the like the go to and some people end up in that role because they have so much experience and domain knowledge and and to be honest, they're not a great fit for that because they don't want to be that person that constantly gets questions and constantly has to, I'll send you a link to the docs. And like, you're very, you you are a good choice for that because you're like a rock. You know what I mean? You're you're the perfect pick for that. When when you ask someone like you so often so many questions, you feel like, oh, I'm sorry to ask you, Jeff. I, I know this is the, yeah. like the fifth time today I've pinged you, but you are like, you are patient and you have all the information. And you're, just, you're like a conductor or like a traffic. You're right. like, oh, you got, a, you got a game bug? Come in here, I'll send you the docs oh you got a platform bug come here i'll send you this ticket i'm working on and like i'm a router yeah <laughs> yeah and i don't mean to diminish you're more no, important sure. than yeah, that yeah. but you you know yeah you being the, the person that like knows where the stuff is um you're walking around keeping everybody safe or something i like yeah. it i've kind of made it my business to like just kind of get into the details of a lot of systems you know like i, I you know it's like almost a natural just curiosity of like wanting to know you know which pieces fit where and why um and i can't remember other stuff but apparently you know all the play-doh infrastructure i can keep it. yeah that's probably a skill too is you know there is some limit for how much stuff you can store in your 
your head, you know? And um, I try to explain this to non-programmers sometimes, like when you're working on certain programs, this isn't always true, but sometimes you have to really compile the code in your head. You have so much working memory mm. in there. You know what I mean? And a lot of times, you know, thinking from program programmer perspective, you've got like, is that RAM or is that like in my hard drive right. of space? And, you know, I'll be working on a game and I get the whole game in my head. And that's another reason like programmers don't often like to be disturbed is because when you do that, your RAM gets erased. Like, oh man, I was working on this bug and then you disturbed me and you now just I can't. the cache. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, and so your ability to have, because like a, a platform like Play-Doh has a large surface area. You know, you have a, there's a lot of moving parts and, you know, client support and so many games and so much content. And you kind of have to keep in your brain a little bit of knowledge of all that stuff at all times to do what you do. And not every brain is, is ready for that. They'll be like, you know, I don't, I can't keep it at all times. Like I need a vacation man get out of here. But yeah, you've got a good mind for that. And you have a good personality for being receptive to being the, like the provider of the, of the docs and, and the, the knowledge yeah. and stuff. I'm, I'm trying to be better still though, because, uh, I feel like when people come to you for stuff, it means they can't find it on their own sometimes. Mm. Right. And so like, there's a better job that you could do with one, having documentation, um, up to date documentation and making sure that people like know how to access it. I have a question for everyone listening. What is documentation? Where does that actually exist? No, I'm kidding. Yes. We're mythical. It's a mythical beast. Is it? Yeah. It's a unicorn. Yeah. We, we know it exists, but it's famously like underappreciated and underworked on. They're like, oh, sorry. Those are way out of date. Or yeah. I've been meaning to update that. Or I have something that you might like. Oh, really? Um, I like things. TypeScript. <laughs> What, what is that? Here, here, here Would you like to inform me? <laughs> um, there is a documentation package um, built for TypeScript called TypeDoc. Um, and it's pretty cool because what it does is it looks at the TypeScript information plus some JS doc style comments. Um, if you remember what those are, it's kind of like a, oh, a yeah. comment block. Right, where you can annotate. There's some tags like at param and at deprecated and all the different things you can sort of tag that function with. You can put examples in line, right? And so your documentation lives like essentially at the top of your function in this document block. Right. Um, and it stays very close to the code. And then you can use these programs like TypeDoc to generate your comments plus the inferred TypeScript typing information into, you know, a static website, right? And then you can serve that. And so we talked about GitHub Actions earlier. This we weekend. sure did. You helped me set up my build process. Yeah. Beautiful. And so we have a GitHub Actions job that will basically build all of the game library packages, you know, lint them, whatever else you want to do run all the tests it generates all the documentation and then it publishes that and then it publishes all the packages and so if you want to make a change all you have to do is push to main um, and all these things happen automatically and the documentation gets updated automatically and you still have to you know manually document your stuff but it lives so close to the code right if like you're in the code messing with a function you can document it right there it's not perfect right people are still going to be like i'm not going to document this right i now. demand perfection or i won't right. do it but um you know and we'll see how it works on practice this this is sort of a new initiative um that I'm trying out because I sort of recognize that our documentation, you know, gets out of date and want to no. try. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It doesn't happen. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I mean, recognize the problem and, you know, take yeah. steps towards fixing and whatnot. Documentation cast. Documentation. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> I'd like to make a list of the driest topics imaginable <laughs> for the next exciting episode of Make the make Game. game. Yeah, right. So uh, with Play-Doh, you are um, very much a conductor and um, you came in um, as more of a game developer because at the time you were a game developer yeah. at, uh, at Lost Decade Games, but you still kind of keep your, your foot in that door or however you say it, right? Like you, you're, you've still got uh, meat in the game, skin in the game. <laughs> My wife I love that. I always mess them up. Skin in the game. Yeah, that's a sports analogy, right? You're you're still making games. Is the point? Uh, right. You, you actually, I'm uh, your itch page. We we both have itch pages. I've got one game in mind. You have like you have to scroll. You have to count. Like there's more than a page. Of there games is here. more than a page of games there. Um, and you're you're you do things like seven day roguelike, low res jam that you've done um yep. multiple like times. And um, you kind of have a main project, right? That's kind of like surfacing among the many the many games that you've made. But like yeah. Uh, so I like to hear about it's i love the name too it's got a great name you ready gloomstone 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 yeah. everybody some some people who follow um your itch page and your blog may have already heard about gloomstone but i think some lost decade fans might be out of the loop and are eager to hear about jeff blair's gloomstone 
Yeah, well, it's uh, kind of a years-long project, honestly, um, that's been up and down. And it's like been through several iterations, right? Like, But it's always been a first-person dungeon crawler. And so some iterations of it were a canvas 2D ray-casted, uh, like, you know, Wolfenstein or Doom. And then some versions have been 3JS. Um, and my most recent version is WebGL um, and various architectures, right? The current one is, is my beloved ECS architecture. Love it. Uh, but other ones have been, you know, different models, right? Where it's like you've got... Got like this, you know, classical and you know simulation class, right? And a bunch of objects and it throws events and blah blah blah, right? So it's kind of been it's been all over, and it's it hasn't always been Gloomstone, Gloomstone either. But um, Gloomstone kind of comes. It's my code name, right? It's not going to be a final name, but it kind of comes from um, wanting to make a Legend of Grimrock esque kind of game, because um, you know dungeon crawlers can kind of go so many different ways. Um, but I particularly like the real time esque nature of a game like Legend of Grimrock. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a world where I, I enjoy, you know, turn-based. You know, you move one grid space, enemies move one grid space, and then nothing happens unless you, you know... Like a true turn-based. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the classic Western RPG approach, probably, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I have sort of this affinity for real-time for a few reasons. I think one is that um, it's sort of where my bread and butter is in terms of, like, game simulation. Um, having worked on games like Onslaught Arena and, and AWL and, like, a lot of the games that I like to work on... And end up being real-time simulations with real-time collisions and real-time you know pseudo physics arcade physics whatever um and i enjoy turn-based games obviously but that's kind of where i feel like drawn to making these systems right because you know everything's happening um you know everything's updating every tick um there's a lot of i'm not gonna i mean slop we've talked about right with a real-time game right but like you can kind of get away with like some interesting design that is a little bit too brittle in a turn-based game you and i have some terminology that yeah. we use that probably might not make sense to other people um, that I love. It's one of the things that makes it so f- fun to talk to you is terms like brittle yeah. that we can just use as a shorthand. And it's it's like it speaks volumes for both of us. But so for, for the listener, brittle to us is this word that means like kind of impassable in some contexts, right? So like a chess, chess is a very brittle game because you either win or you lose. Your piece can be here or not. And like if there's an impassable area, like chess is a game where you can just draw. It's a draw game. Whereas something like Splunky is not so brittle. It's not brittle at all. Like there are brittle moments where like you might find yourself in a pit, no ropes, you're dead. That is a brittle ending where there's nothing to, to be done is just broken almost right but Spelunky itself is not a brittle game with regards to like even if you're one health there's always options so something you right. can do right and almost any real-time game like any first-person shooter or something is not going to be brittle in our terminology right yeah. when we talk about game design um, and it's not that brittle is a bad thing right it's not right it's not a like derogatory term it's more just a, it's a trait it's a trait yeah like like, like chess is brittle in a, in a brilliant worldwide love beloved yeah, exactly, game there's right. no there's nothing wrong with chess but it is extremely brittle that's all but the design for that game the bar is high i think right like you have to really nail um all of the balance right yeah right so like brittle is less forgiving like right. chess is a ancient perfected game like as brittle as it is it is it is perfect right um and some other games when they are really brittle they can kind of feel bad like, like you and i've probably made some puzzle games where they're pretty they're kind of too brittle and you're like eh, 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 and then you're just stuck and you're like there's nothing i can do like the, the, yeah. you know roguelikes are famous for giving you like a like a shovel you can use in multiple ways or like multiple ways out like Spelunky right off the bat gives you bombs and ropes and other things to like a whip and jumping it gives you multiple tools it doesn't want to be brittle it wants to give you like it wants you to like yeah you can blow a hole in that wall there or you could try to face that monster or you could skip this entirely right I love that kind of uh, that kind of stuff and yeah again it's not good or bad they're just traits we use to describe stuff yeah um, anyway brittle has come up a lot because as you were talking about gloomstone has kind of evolved a lot like Witchmore, right where I'm like it was this and now it's this and like it's always kind of been the same i call them cousins like hmm. i have this thing called builder it's a cousin of which right. so distant relative yeah, which yeah. builder is Witchmore. it's what Witchmore turned into it's one of the reasons Witchmore has been so kind of awkward and it's kind of this mutant monster like i will be a game someday <laughs> you got a tentacle <clears throat> over here and yeah sprouted and i feel like gloomstone has, has been going through a similar process which makes sense because we were both working on these projects as we're like we don't have the time for this yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're busy we have jobs we're still doing it and it, but they kind of come out in this interesting way where they have had lots of iteration and and, um, different versions over time, right? So a lot of the versions of Gloomstone that you and I have talked about, brittle 
comes up a lot. I think because you have certain elements like tile-based movement. So one tile at a time, one tile at a time. That's an, uh, interesting and I love it, yeah. but it's inherently brittle because you can walk on a tile and now you're surrounded by spikes. Nothing you can do. There's no there's no softness to it. There's no give. There's no options. It's brittle. It's You're dead. Yeah, you make a wrong decision sometimes and you've screwed yourself. Yeah, so you yeah. use this term hybrid to describe your kind of gameplay with uh, Gloomstone, which I thought was really interesting because yes, it's sort of turn-based in that like no one, no two entities can, if I'm correct about this, they can uh, inhabit the same tile at a time, which right. is pretty brittle and almost kind of chess-based, but it being real-time and having like cooldowns, so like swinging a sword or throwing a fireball and stuff, those are real-time and so those are really not brittle. Like if a monster starts to swing at you, you have the ability to like dodge. Whereas in a brittle design, like a true turn-based design, there is no monster starts to swing at you. It just, it takes it certain hits you. Unless it's Into the Breach, which the whole game was designed around like giving you a heads up about what the monster plans. Right. But it's completely different. Like that's, Into the Breach is brittle. It's almost as brittle as it gets. Like they give you lots of tools and stuff, right? But it's easy to see how in Into the Breach you could be like, there is nothing that you can do in this environment. Like you, yeah. you are dead. You made three wrong decisions and now you're done. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. Again, not bad. I adore yeah. End of the Breach. And Same. one of the things I, I like it. about it is its brittleness. It, it feels like, like chess, like super chess or something. Yeah. Super chess with giant monsters. Cool. Glimstone. <laughs> it has those brittle elements, but maybe the hybrid. Maybe you could speak to that because I think that's a really interesting part of the game. And it's also, you know, certain parts of, of Gloomstone have changed over time. Yeah. And I feel like the hybridness is something you've, you've retained through almost all the versions and you've latched. So I feel like that's probably one of your immutable thing traits of the game, right? Yeah, I would say it's kind of an anchor um, yeah. because I just, I want sort of an arcade feeling. Like I want a dungeon crawler but i want it to be on a timer essentially right like i want time to pass i want things to happen in the world without you doing anything mm. and so you're sort of you know there's a pressure right like in any real-time game if you just sit there monsters are going to move clock's ticking clock's ticking right like you know something bad might happen you know spelunky right great example ghost is going to come at two and a half minutes oh yeah right you could sit there you know as long as you want but something's going to force you you know force the issue one way or the other jab you in the back like, yeah oh, let's go let's go um the way i think about this engine is it's kind of like chess but imagine if each piece on the board had its own cooldown right you can imagine you have a chess board right and there's like 5,000 milliseconds on the top of each piece mm-hmm. or maybe it's different right for each piece yeah maybe the pawns are a thousand milliseconds they're one second cooldown and the bishops are like 3,000 or whatever right the pieces get stronger the cooldown gets higher but whenever a piece's cooldown is up you can move it right and so you're like oh pawn move okay and then the cooldown starts on that pawn again and so in a second that pawn can move again so there's no turn based but things can only move one grid space at a time so you still have that grid based movement but it's all really you know it's all real time except for uh well not except for but the the sort of limiting factor is is that you know each individual entity can only move or act you know after a certain amount of time so you kind of get this feel of like things moving on a chessboard but you know they're all on their own independent timers i can picture it that yeah. sounds like a uh, maddening version of chess you got these because yeah, <gasps> you know a chess being brittle as it is a pawn is you know like a, like a first class citizen like a, a pawn is as powerful as a queen right in certain contexts because it's brittle right whereas in other contexts with a softer game it would be like you know uh no the splunky character is not as powerful as olmec <laughs> yeah well it's like you know uh a level one boar in, a, in an rpg game like at a certain point it's not going to be a threat to you right but a pawn can always threaten a queen or a king exactly right because a pawn can win the game a queen only has one hit point yeah the same way a pawn only has one hit point. A cow will not win the game in a JRPG. <laughs> right. Like if there's like an area where you're leveling up, like killing bats and rats and cows and stuff, like, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. So, yeah, Gloomstone's kind of been through a lot of iterations. Um, architecturally, I think, you know, as much as sort of visually, uh, you know, like I said, you know, went from ray casting to 3D to more 3D. I think you've walked the gamut of yeah. the, the, like, all, of, pretty, you might have, of all the various ways to render 3D on the web. Yeah. I mean, you didn't true. start trying engines, I guess, like, play canvas or something well technically I, 3js 3js i mean 3js is not a game engine no it's like a rendering engine right it's like a 3d scene and so yeah when you implemented that one you talked about how there was this layer where you've got your ecs and then you've got 3js 
and then there was this layer where they had to kind of communicate together, kind of like plugging in, you know, a USB C cable to a to a right. USB cable or something. Like they're uh, they're not speaking the same language, but but they no. are, you know, I hey, you know, your game engine's like, hey, I just want to render a cube, and 3GS is like, I can do that, but they they need to communicate like a translator between, right? Yeah, and it's it kind of comes down to something that we talk about with ECS a lot, right? Which is state and. 3GS has its own state. It's a scene, it's a stateful scene graph. Here is a box. Here are its vertices. I'm 3JS and I understand where that box is in space, right? That's right. the state of the scene is that you have a box here and a plane here and whatever else, right? And if you have your own simulation, right? Your own game simulation, then those things need to be kept in sync, right? The state yeah. of the 3JS scene has to match the state of whatever your game simulation happens to be. Right. And this is actually how I designed games for a long time, right? Like I would have the simulation, right? Which is like, okay, here's some class with some state and some methods, right? That simulate the game world, right? Whether it's a real-time whatever or a turn-based something, right? This is like, it gets some ticks or it gets some input from the player and, you know, it processes that information and updates the state of the simulation then it throws some events. But that's one state, one system holding its own state. Um, And then I would have a separate system that was the scene graph, right? That's like, okay, here's a sprite that represents you know some entity in the game simulation and if that entity died or an entity was created you had to sync that state essentially right and so that would happen through events right like oh entity spawn and then the the view layer would pick up that entity spawn event and say oh i'm going to create a sprite for it based on its type or whatever you know yeah whatever rules you have um and so when i introduced 3js into the mix then i had like this third state right where i had like my underlying game simulation which had no visuals whatsoever i had my 2d canvas like UI rendering, title screen, you know, whatever. And then I had this 3JS state. And so I had like three separate pieces of, you know, essentially worlds, right? I had the 3JS world, I had my simulation world, and I had my 2D scene graph world. And those are all kind of like, you know, in the mix together. And they had to talk to each other and throw events and like keep in sync. And so uh, no surprise, ECS is like a huge boon here, I think, um, because what it does is it puts all that state into one kind of collection, right? Um, And and part of this is like ditching something like 3JS, right? 3JS has its own state, it's very opinionated, and I don't want that in my ECS engine because really it's like an external resource that I have to keep in sync with my game state. Um, and so what I did for my latest revision is I have all my state in my ECS, like here's my entities and they have these positions and they have these sprite components and whatever other component data you need. Um, and then I just render it all in 3D using WebGL instead of 3JS. And so the nice thing about that is that I have one source of truth, right, which is my entity component system state and my WebGL renderer then renders that state. And it's, it's all harmonious and beautiful. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of is um, multiple fonts when you have multiple renderers. Do you know how it's generally known to be kind of bad design to have like, I've got 15 fonts here, right? Yeah. And used in the same, like on one, on one image. Um, my wife and I were driving recently and we were behind this car and just for, just for nerd fun, we began to count the fonts on the back of the car. And there wasn't just the car chrome and, and the pieces of permanent car fixtures. There were bumper stickers oh, and other things. Yeah. Uh, I counted and, and you could count them differently. And also some of the stickers you can't even see, that might be three different fonts on there. I yeah. counted seven. 17 at one wow. point in this one context and design wise you know sometimes you can you can justify but usually it's like two you, you want like a header and then like the body and, and like that's about all you maybe something special for numbers or different yeah. you know foreign characters or something but in general it's like three tops you know what I mean well you want consistency right you want consistency and that remind like it made me think of that because what is a font if not a renderer you know what I mean and with multiple renderers like I just really hate the way unity does it you know, like with the, you've got your little world ends up being this tiny little thing and you have this gigantic looking weird canvas when you're like kind of looking at your scenes and all like the just the object you use are different like oh that's not a transform well it kind of is sort of but it's actually a rect transform and I'm like can you just move this over a few pixels and it's like well in pixel space or do you want unit space I'm like will you shut up and like in my yeah in my ACS and this is a little sloppy and it causes its own problems like everything does right but my ACS everything's an entity and the renderer for the game object is exactly the same as the renderer for the UI and stuff right i think that's the way you know it should be i guess because there's a lot of value in like a homogenous pipeline right because it's simpler and when everything flows to the same pipeline right like you can take advantage of batching yes and it's easier to optimize in a lot of ways right 
Yes. And, and it's just less complicated because you have fewer moving parts, right? It's like, oh, if you're going to render something to the screen, it goes to this pipeline. Right? Yeah. It's like, it's this pit of success uh, thing that I picked up from the Overwatch ECS talk that I love. I will link to that. Yeah. We've probably talked about it before, but I, I love it. So the idea is that, you know, you, there is like a way to do things. Like you, you're going to fall into this pit because it's the way to do things, but it's like this really uh, homogenous pipeline. As long as you treat everything the same, right? You get a lot of power from that. I, I got to catch everybody up on, on the Jeff Blair Canaan. So um, you are a person who doesn't watch videos. I, I, and I'm a person who sends lots of videos, right? Not and, to me anymore. Not to you anymore. I, I, got, I, I understand. If it's maybe 15 seconds or so, you might you might tolerate it. Um, but you ha- you do have your own videos that are precious to you the way that I do. And I have yeah. like 55,000 of them and you have like two. And one of them, maybe you have one, I don't even know, but um, Overwatch netcode video, right? Yeah. You talk about it enough. Like I watched it because you send me a GDC video, especially from someone like you, you send me a GDC video, you can guarantee I'm going to watch that. And this is one of those videos where, um, I don't feel bad about this. I used to be a little embarrassed about this. I don't care anymore. I'll tell anybody this. I had to watch that two or three times. Oh, me too. And I had to pause it and I had to like, wait, what did he actually say there? And like, I I pause, I need to look at this giant screen and like, you know, the the way that I learn is I'm kind of implementing in my head, I guess, as I'm watching, because as he's talking about his ECS, I'm kind of programming it in my head if i'm not writing yeah. specifically javascript you know bites down in my mind i'm at least you're kind coming of simulating up with some structure yeah. and right yeah i'm planning how like I, I got i got a flow chart going at least in my mind and the first time i watched it i was like it was just like homer simpson just dust like a weed going by and i'm like <laughs> what because he's like the things that you say all the time now and you're like because uh i'm sure you want to say it the the component has no just say it just say it components have no behavior and systems have no state there it is yeah and that is not how my ecs works my ecs feels like uh like uh matt's first ecs for babies play school ecs <laughs> well i should have, I tell everybody too ecs stands for entity component system i feel like that's also part of your canon because like podcasted so many times about ecs on uh, on lost cast right yeah i think we had at least two that were just that and we multiple times we'd bring it up just as tangents and stuff but i'm i'm kind of falling back in love with ECS because I've been on Wichmore for a long time where Unity is objectively not ECS. I've heard there's dots which uh, supports that kind of structure and I haven't yeah. tried it so I'm happy for anyone who's using that. I've built way too much of the game to even consider that so to me Unity is just not ECS. It's very object oriented, very kind of classical inheritance um, which and, you know you can do that in ECS too if you want whatever. Right. It can be compatible but my ECS is like aside from the uh, the, com- the component in the system and the, some more of the rigid architecture that comes from that Overwatch netcode, it doesn't have some of those advanced features that I want to bake into it, but uh, it gets the job done and it's ECS and it's yeah. you know, fast and whatever. But And yeah. there's like a, there's a whole <laughs> range of like ECS-ish architectures, right? Yeah. Like honestly, n- putting the, the Unity dots thing aside, um, you know, your kind of regular Unity flow is an ECS in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it definitely is, right? Because you have components that are attached to entities. Right. But it's it breaks some of the rules that other people might say right about the the separation of state and behavior right because every one of those components is itself an instance of a class that has methods that can be overwritten or extended right like you can have a component that extends another component you can have a component that has tightly coupled behavior right oh when you get the start event from unity or you get the update event from unity run this code that is tightly coupled to your monster ai component yeah right um and that's how a lot of our early ecs's work too right like i think my journey along the ecs path has has started in a similar spot right where it was like here's an entity and here's components but the like a lot of the underlying structure is like compo- uh, class-based um and now i'm sort of like at this other end of the spectrum where um i just want data to be pure and i want components to not have any behavior like they're just they're just bundles of state right here's an xy position here Here's a sprite reference. Here's a health pool. You know, yeah. What's the data? What are the properties of this thing? What state is it in? And then the behavior comes from the systems who are observing that piece of state, right? And so your renderer. This is something they mentioned in the Overwatch talk that I really like. It's like the behavior depends on the observer. And so to your renderer, the position means something specific. Where do I draw this on the screen? How do I transform this position into a 3D world? 
or a 2D world or whatever it is. How do I transform a UI element into screen space versus a 3D element into world space? Yeah. Um, whereas something else might be looking at the position from a completely different perspective, right? Like, yeah. where is the sound originating relative to the player, right? Yeah. And so the nice thing about that separation is that each system can look at each piece of state from its own perspective and from the things that it cares about. Um, and, and the state itself, the component, doesn't necessarily have any behavior of its own other than being a, you know, repository of data yeah. that could be mutated. Yeah, and that's one of the ways that, like, even if Unity kind of looks or smells or feels like an ECS in some ways, those parts of it make it feel very much not like an ECS to me. Like, yeah. you could think of a game object, which is kind of the default thing in Unity, as an entity. And, like, it can be, and they definitely have components, so that fits really well. But the fact that a game object in Unity comes with so much baggage, and it is a class that comes preloaded with methods and, and just all this stuff that comes with it. Whereas, like, in your architecture, an entity is, we, we were saying this earlier, your entity is five. Yeah. That entity is 17 yeah. it's just so data focused and then that's almost like a, it's just a series of lookup tables well five is meaningless that is very important that is this entity but it really just points you to this you know structure of, of component data and that you can mess with the, it's so the components are just data it's just data like yeah. in javascript land that's just json it's beautiful and then the system is responsible for doing stuff with it whereas like in unity you know the, the paradigm the pattern people use is like i got a game object i'm going to stick all the code on it which is not how an ecs wants you to use it at all you know yeah. so yeah it's fair to say that there's like that unity is sort of an ecs and i'm sure some people use it that way the reason we brought up that awesome talk was that you said pit of success which is another thing in our kind of uh, lexicon yeah because <laughs> we say it all the time and other people you know probably have probably haven't seen the talk because yeah so uh but a pit of success is great because it's like you have to get the pit you got to do it this way but if you go in there you're gonna have a good time yeah it's, it's a happy pit it's a yeah, happy pit and i feel like with you um you have kind of something the guy says in the talk i forget his name but um he was saying that like when he talks about ecs he now has the benefit of hindsight because he's done the other things and he's done a other version of ECS and everything. And I feel like with Gloomstone, you've kind of walked the renderer gamut and now you've arrived. And it feels like this is the renderer yeah. that you'll stick with. I think so, yeah. Uh, that guy's name is Timothy Ford, by the way. Thank you. He's a lead gameplay programmer at Blizzard. I will I will definitely link to that talk. I've seen it a few times and yeah. I highly recommend it. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to say too uh, about ECS, I mean, I could talk about ECS all day. One big shift for me was the underlying data model. Um, and so there's a quote, which I'm going to butcher uh, by somebody who's probably a famous computer scientist. So you don't remember everyone's name, no. apparently. <laughs> Not unless they're a gameplay programmer at Blizzard. Just them. Just them. But there's this idea that if you structure your data correctly, the algorithms you need to operate on that data become simpler. That, that, that's kind of the gist. I like that. That sounds like a Casey Muratori. It's older than that. I mean, it sure does. Yeah. I'm sure that's something that he agrees with. Right. <laughs> I, I shouldn't speak for him because, you know, whatever. But, yeah. But you're like, this is actually from a programming book from the 60s or something. Yeah, I think it is. Um, Ancient knowledge. Casey Miratori, though, uh, really interesting guy. Another uh, set of videos that I personally like, um, he has a video about optimization that I think is is brilliant. Um, there it is. There's that second video. You talk yeah. about it all the time. And <laughs> I have watched it. Yeah. And uh, I did only have to watch that one once, I'm happy to say. I think, yeah, that one is, is not as uh, dense conceptually, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense, right? I think the big takeaway for me from that video, and pardon the, uh, the bird walking here, but uh, the big takeaway for me from that video is that he says optimization is a task that he doesn't do a lot. Like he doesn't often sit down and profile this code and tweak it and cache stuff and try and make it performant. Instead, he has this approach, which he calls, uh, is it non-pessimization or pessimization? Anyways, basically it's saying like, he just writes his code from the start as best he can, obviously, without, you know, dependencies, without extra stuff. Like he just does it sort of like the straightforward way first. And that's usually more performant, right? Brute force even usually as the approach. I don't know about brute force, but like a uh, reasonable it, approach. I think it's more that it's more like don't do extra work, which sometimes means don't do it in the brute force way, right? Like you, you could be a programmer and you could look at a problem and you could be like, oh, I could brute force it or I could not. And I don't think that what he's saying is take the brute force approach. I think what he's saying is don't do unnecessary things. And sometimes by definition, a brute force support approach is doing unnecessary thing, right? Hmm. Because you're doing it for everything in a batch that you don't need to or whatever. Mm. It's a good video. I probably don't do it justice. 
this. So, but I, I think it, it's it's a good video to to think about when you're thinking about you know getting it right the first time versus going back and fixing something that needs optimization. So I like that one. Yeah. yeah. Is there a third video that comes to mind? Do you have a third recommendation? I don't know. Because if not, you heard it here, folks. There's just two videos. There's only two. <laughs> I recommend like I seriously I can find 900 if, yeah. you, if you'd like some recommendations, but just the two folks gotta watch those. Yeah. It's, it's, you can get that done. They can let, get that list done. Just mark them yeah. off. And I think uh, the Overwatch video is like an hour. So yeah, certainly. And I gotta say, it's it's a beast. It's dense. It's so knowledge packed. It's a good watch. Yeah, I do recommend that one a lot. But to kind of jump back to my uh, earlier thing about data structures, right? So like, it, if you get your data model right, it's easier to query against, essentially, right? It's imagine writing a database, right? And you're like, oh, okay, I made all these complicated tables, and I have to join all this crap together to get the information that I want. That means that your program is doing more work at runtime than it needs to do. Like you've put your data into the structure that is hard to query against, right? And so you pay that cost at runtime because you have to do all kinds of complicated stuff to get the data you want. And I think about that a lot with my newer ECS models because entities are just a number, right? Like when I think about entity component systems, entities are the least important of those things, right? Mm. And it, and I think for a lot of game engines, the entity is kind of the central figure. That's right? the case for my engine. And, and it makes sense. Right, because if you're thinking about the world from like a human perspective, you're like Matt. Well, Matt that's is the a... most important person that <laughs> right. exists in this universe. Right. I'm looking through his eyes, that's his entity number one is Matt. I'm playing the Matt game right yeah. now. So you think about Matt as a holistic entity, right? You think about Matt is like okay, that's an entity. Matt is an entity, and he has these components and these properties. He's got you know programmer component, and he's got yeah. musician component. Oh, thanks. I'll take that. He's got jerk component. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't argue it, but that's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Oof. But from a data model perspective, that's not that helpful if Matt and Jeff and whoever are the root, right? Hmm. In my ECS, I almost, I, I never iterate over all entities. Never. Oh, that's, me, me neither. <laughs> no. Why, why would you do that? I didn't just show you some code that did that yesterday. <laughs> But the problem is, is because you almost never want to access the data that way. In in a real world scenario, yeah. in, a, in an You're entity quota right. system, you never want, oh, I would like to loop over all entities. And so if you organize your data model that way, you that that's a that's a pit of despair, right? Oh, right? oh I like that. Because the, the, the way that the engine wants you to use it is to be like, loop over all the entities and figure out what you want. We got right? two pits now. That's we useful. got two pits. Yeah, I love it. I feel like the pit of despair is from something from Princess Bride. It is. Yeah. Pit of despair. You, that's the second time you've quoted. I, it that won't is, be the that last. Is, that is part of the, the Jeff Blair uh, experience. <laughs> you are a fan. I am. You will hear about the screeching eels and whatnot. Right. Bring out Jeff for a certain amount of time. Do you hear that, princess? <laughs> Those are the screeching eels. Anyways. Yeah. Um, but... I think that's a really important part of this architecture, right? Is that components are the important part. Components are the state. And when you think about systems, right. systems want to operate on some number of components. They don't actually care that Matt has a transform and Matt has a sprite. How dare they? Yeah, I they, worked hard on that sprite. They're a jerk. <laughs> Just like me. We can be friends. But when you organize your data that way, so like in my engine, an entity is really just a number that ties a bunch of components together. Um, it's a lookup table. It's a lookup. Right. Yeah. So these components relate to five. Yeah. We're together now. But the nice thing about that is that from a data model perspective, all the transform components are in one bucket. All the sprite components are in one bucket. And so instead of having this bucket of entities, you have a bucket per component. And then what that allows you to do is that your rendering system, for example, can say, just give me all the sprites. Yeah. And it's easy for your engine to provide all the sprites because they exist in one bucket. They're not in a list of global. You wouldn't have to be like, uh, I would like to call every human in the world and among them, my wife, please. Instead, right. you can be like, you know. Like, are you my wife? No? Okay. Are you next, my wife? Next. No. That, that's what my code is doing right now. <laughs> yeah. Do I collide with you 10 miles away? No? Okay, goodbye. Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> everything, everything. Is everything colliding? Like, no. I, also, I will never move. There's yeah. a better way to optimize me. And so the nice thing about this entity component, or like a more rigid entity component system, is that your collision code can start with the subset of collider component. I only care about this bucket of colliders because everything that's going to collide in the world is going to have a collider component and you've immediately discarded anything that's not a collider. Yeah, your architecture is inherently more optimized right out of the gate. And that's one of the reasons that I, my next approach at an ECS will be closer to 
what you are doing now. And that's, I think that kind of gets back to the Casey Miratori thing about pessimization, right? Is that like you design your code for the things that you want it to do rather than some arbitrary abstractions that are going to kind of bite you in the the rear later, right? You can say ass on make the game. Can I? <laughs> I have, uh, I declare it so. Well, there you go. I think it's fine. It'll bite. If you're gonna like, I don't know. I, I had a whole thing where I was on a different podcast where I was talking about the cursing problem. But yeah. it's like I'm not gonna sit here and I will probably drop f bombs constantly in natural conversation. But like, you're not gonna work in game dev without a little ass here and there, right? Like, it's gonna be it's gonna be much worse than this podcast. So if you're if you're in here for the for the game dev education, this is this is as clean as it's gonna get. That's that's yeah. where I've drawn the line. Yeah. So sorry if that's not good enough. But welcome to game dev. I I kind of like it either sometimes. But here we are. Yeah. Anyway. So anyways, I think, you know, that's that kind of gets to the root of the benefit here, right? Is like thinking about how your data is going to be used, how you want to access your data, and then modeling it that way instead of coming up with some arbitrary abstraction beforehand and then trying to write your code to yeah. work against that abstraction. Yeah. So many times people assume they're going to need this or that, or they're just like, well, last time I did this, I needed all these bells and whistles, or I needed it to be super optimized. So I did it in this really confusing, awful way. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, we did not need this. Why is it like, why isn't this just a for loop? Yeah. It's like, no, I, yeah, it's there's a, I did it this weird way. But I mean, that's kind of uh, sort of the issue I've had with object oriented programming over the years, right? Is that it's a, often it's more of a human abstraction, right? Conceptually than it is like a computer abstraction. Like mm. the computer probably would operate better in, in different circumstances, right? Yeah. Like if the data is, is orientated in a different way, but like we as people see things as bundles. Matt, you're a bundle. Of oh, stuff. you have to. This is just the way the human brain works. Yeah. You have to glom stuff together. The, the human brain can't make any sense of it. Right. Yeah. This thing is a car, and this car has these properties. But yeah. Like it's a it's a tightly coupled entity, right? right? Whereas in an ECS, like that's not really true. Like you have a bunch of components floating around, and some of those components are tied to the same entity ID. Yeah. But you could like remove components. You could add components. You could like you know look at just this list of components. Like you don't care. I don't. I don't care that you know a collider also has a sprite. That collision system doesn't care yeah and i love that like um you can just have like an entity with no data just floating around and it doesn't hurt anything it's just like a particle i guess yeah. it's strange how that works but it totally does what's interesting is uh, we've been having these talks recently about how like we have a tendency to focus on the tech which we know we over engineer things and we're programmers by trade not us but that doesn't sound <laughs> like me at all not guilty at all so um i sent my pixel washer kickstarter video to my buddy ben everybody knows by uh, heartbeast recently and he had some really good feedback from me and one of them was like, I, I'm talking about the game. I start off strong, I'm talking about Pixel Washer, but then I start, I get into like, and here are the game dev tasks that I need to do, which like right. it's, it's always understandable because you're making the game, right? And with a Kickstarter, one of the questions is, what do you need the money for? And so it's like, well, to make the game. And so I had on there like, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to players and gamers. I'm supposed to be. And I'm like, hello, player. I need to work on my desktop build. And I'm thinking about using Electron and I need to work on Steam integration. And there's probably a library. And they're like, I do not care. And I get to one part, which is about game development, where I'm in this program called Tiled, and I'm like kind of messing with the data. And you can see the sprites in the game, you can see the graphics, and then you get to really quickly see how the changes I made in this very visual tool are now good in the game. And it's it's a the overlap of game dev and game was enough that the players would still be on board. Um, but the point being is that it's really hard for people like you and me to talk about the game. You know what I mean? And so I think we're both trying to do that more. So I want to talk about Gloomstone, the game. No, no, let's talk about WebGL more. <laughs> well, there's this optimization trick. <laughs> yeah. So we talked earlier how tile by tile movement yeah. and then like cooldowns. What else about the game? So you're speaking to a player. The player doesn't know what JavaScript is. I, I, Matt, I don't mm. know. Pretend we're like, you make fun of me now. Claim that I already don't know what JavaScript is. I'm opening myself up. There you go. You know, but yeah. pretend I don't care about game dev. I'm like, game dev. I just want to play a game, man. So I think my vision for Gloomstone is that it is a real-time first-person dungeon-crawling roguelike with like an arcade kind of feel. Nice. Yeah. And I want to step away from things like lots of inventory management. So, you know, if you're like, oh, I want to have a paper doll with, you know, my plus three breastplate, right? And then I pick up a plus four breastplate and I drag it over and drop it. And then I sell the plus three breastplate for 15 gold. Like that's 
not that's not what I'm going for. I'm going for, you know, in the world of the moment, monster slaying, dungeon crawling, first person, roguelikey mayhem. I can almost picture you could play it at an arcade cabinet and you can yeah. see like the, the actions are kind of more like that. Like, you're talking about like maybe a um, a punching is a good place to start. Yeah. Of just like, you know, yeah, you're going to have weapons and lots and lots and lots of content later. But a good starting point is just like, okay, you're just a character and you just have, you know, feet, you can walk and you got hands and you can punch. And uh, I like that because, you know, boxing is very much an action kind of arcadey, fa- lots of famous boxing arcade games like punch out and whatnot. Yeah, I think it, the, the the cadence you mentioned is really important, right? Like it's a, it's a game where it's like move, 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 attack, step back, step back, rotate, attack mm-hmm. again, move, yeah. hide behind this corner, wait for the monster to come, attack again. Yeah, you were talking about Doom a little bit where, you know, yeah. it doesn't share that much. Just to be clear, it's not a first person shooter. Right. You, you're not gonna have a machine gun and no, there's no yeah. imps throwing fireballs at you but it like oh maybe imps yeah that's true and maybe throwing fireball. I think there was a version of Gloomstone where you had like, I remember like a firewall would like move turn by turn through the level which was really cool so like you might have gameplay like that but it would yeah. have, you know in Doom you very much have you strafe from behind a wall and you shoot your shotgun and you strafe back and then you let the shotgun zombie person shoot and then when you know they're right yeah between shots and you you get that kind of gameplay and they're very like whoa the monster to my left I didn't realize yeah. you quickly run away and but it's like more towards that end of the spectrum than a dungeon crawler where you would you know oh random monster encounter now you're in like a turn-based battle suck luck to fight this guy's gonna cast this spell this thing's gonna happen you know all that resolves monster attacks you you win or lose you rinse repeat so some of our age-old conversations because you and i've been working together for over a decade now in various capacities right and some of our earliest conversations we wanted to make role-playing games and you were the first one to ever point out that like random battles uh aren't great Mm. and um i would would like bring them into my my game designs and then you would you would be like you know you're collaborative and, and friendly and receptive but you were like i don't know about random battles and i'm like what do you mean there's it's just they're, they're, this it's is an rpg staple work. yeah but you were like you know they're not that fun and here's all the reasons and i'm like huh you're kind of right and like i just think back to the times when i play them and like they're really annoying like the games were like final fantasy mystic quest maybe probably no one's played that one but like this is a game where there are no random battles you can see the monster just sitting there and you can choose if you want to go fight it or not most of them you have to or a large portion of them you have to but but it's like more of a player agency right like you can decide when you engage that monster you know it's coming you can sort of be prepared for it right and and i think that makes a lot of difference well hey man it's been great hanging out um that this might be the first uh in-person podcast i've done on make the game uh, oh. i think it's really appropriate i've done it with uh, like on, on the graph of who have you podcasted the most with right yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a bar graph. I've actually caught twice with this person this time. Uh, yeah, with you at 200. This is 251, I think, unless there's something we're missing somewhere. That's true, yeah. yeah. But always a pleasure. We'll do um, more. Um, we have plans down the road when you hit certain milestones with Gloomstone. We'll have you back on the show. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the tech like we do, but we'll also talk, like we talked about in this episode, we'll talk about the game, right? Yeah. And uh, I have a dev diary that I've started for Gloomstone. Um, there's one, one whole entry uh, on my blog so it's interesting you check it out hey one is infinitely more than zero that's right it's a great start and i have i've done a bunch of stuff that i need to blog about so i I have another update coming uh which includes a tantalizing topic of removing typescript and going back to plain javascript oh yeah which that's one we could talk about for another hour i think that is a yeah that would be a great future episode uh because i i was pleasantly surprised to see you coming back to javascript land because i know i'm a weirdo over here and so it's like oh i also like that strange island you're on and i'm like yay i think it's kind of funny how we both have sort of like coalesced into this tiled centric pure javascript ecs project right i think the only difference between our two projects right now is that i'm using a webgl renderer and you're using canvas 2d Uh, okay let's just say that as it is your acs is just better in in two ways webgl is kind of just the preferred platform over Campus 2D weirdly, and also your ECS. I'm just like, I, I'm. There are active things I want to change in my CS to make it more like yours. <laughs> Basically, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start using yours instead. I'll sell you a license. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sign this royalty contract now. Ugh. It's uh, $99 a month. Oh, my God. For businesses making over $10 a month. Mm, I actually am. It's how they get you. Yeah. You're more expensive than Unity. What's wrong with you? <laughs> 
Keep using Unity CS then. Uh, I don't wanna. So much bloat. My whole game is like 3K right now. Oh man, that's yeah. I love that about the little web projects. It's like just especially you know low res graphics. Like I think one of the you know the the WebGL renderer is really nice because I can render my pixelated graphics at super high resolution. Mm. And so my canvas is big and it looks fantastic, but the graphics are really just you know 16 by 16. And so I can keep that like really efficient pipeline, um, but then present it in a really like high res, nice way. Yeah, we were just talking about an interesting problem in Pixel Washer where the game is a true, uh, I think it's 512 by 288. And there was a complaint that like the camera kind of scrolls with a, with a lerp so that it slows down when it reaches the player. And when you, when you have a low resolution like that game, it's true pixels, so it's blown up. And almost as if it were rendered on like an actual Nintendo entertainment system or something of about that size, you see those actual, <laughs> you see those last few pixels because right. the game doesn't have the capability right. of rendering in a lower resolution. A yeah. pixel at a time. Exactly. So the only way for me to solve that particular problem would be to re-architect it so that the game uses, you know, CSS or something to move either the canvas or the particular location where it's drawing that map within the, I think I, have, I think would have to move the canvas actually. It's a tough problem. Yeah, it's a so tough you, problem and it's, you know, I, I do think smooth animation is, is nice, but it is a archi- uh, uh, artistic choice of mine to be like, I, I really actually prefer games that are crisp, perfect, consistent pixels. And it really bugs me that like my game is that, but there's some like blurry font issues on like some browsers and um, some of the, the drawing calls I'm going to change. But they actually like the Canvas API actually introduces some natural anti-aliasing that you can't change, which is frustrating. But yeah, that's what I like about the Canvas 2B. 2D API is it's it does have some advantages over WebGL with, recar- with regards to just raw 2D pixel data, right? But it's slower, it has less hardware acceleration, and it's not the preferred platform. Like if you know, if anyone was going to make a modern web game, they would they would look at WebGL, obviously. I wonder if what you could do with Pixel Washer is just blow up the canvas by two, assuming the performance is good, and then scale everything up by two. And so what that would do is essentially uh, give you more sort of like pixel space to scroll around in. Um, but you know every but you know every one pixel would be like four pixels. Yeah. Right. But yeah. then but then you could essentially scroll on like a fourth of a pixel resolution. It's interesting to be a pixel. Right. Air yeah. Quotes. There's something about the pure crisp pixels that I actually really like. Yeah. And I think this might end up being one of those things where like, you know, you've kind of got to make a game for yourself sometimes. Yeah. I'm I'm making Pixel Washer like I do want to play it, but I think it's really for people who are like have little oh, I really like I've got, you know, they like um fidget spinners or like they've got like a hand squeeze they like to do. Like I have some of those traits, but I think some people get really into that stuff. I think it's really for them. But the pixel stuff might be kind of just for me yeah. because I could have made a game about washing flowers. Um, board game washer. I don't even know. I was just looking at board games there. Yeah. Brick washer. Cat uh, washer. Yeah, <laughs> That's a really good idea. It's just cats and you're just washing cats all day and they're just like, you just, yeah, you put a lot of time into like making really pretty cats. They'd probably be 3D and have little animations and they might even be a simulation where they want. Dog bather. I actually really love bathing my dogs, Koopa and Gamark. Mm. I love bathing them. I, I, I don't, I'm not bothered by it because I get to like spend some time with my little doggy and it's in context I don't usually see them in. Like usually I'm not like rubbing his neck down like I gotta get this soap in here and you don't usually, see them when they're all like wet and pathetic. Yeah, I don't like, usually see them being like, I hate life. And I don't want to see them like that, but it's cute because they're just like, and I'm, I'm like, you're wet. fine, you're just wet. Like, this would be done in five minutes. But, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah, but like the point being that like you could wash anything. I chose pixels for myself. And I think it's kind of cool that my engine is like a pixel is a real thing. I can yeah. draw one pixel. That's one of the things that I don't really love about my Unity platform and like with, with Pixel Washer is that, like, or with which one? I mean is that with unity I feel so far from a pixel Mm-hmm. The only way I know to draw a pixel in my current tech stack with Witchmore would be to create a 20, like a well, a pretty big sprite. It doesn't matter. I could create whatever, but probably be like a 64 by 64 sprite with one pixel in it. <laughs> and I don't even know if it would be visible in certain contexts. I'm just, I'm distanced from the pixel. The pixel is not my default unit in Witchmore. It's a sprite. Yeah. It's a tile or something. And I, I, I missed, because that's how I grew up was with pixel games and with you and I, we, we learned, like when we first blotted sprites, it was a raster generation. It 
it, it was like I we are writing the code to blit pixel by pixel. That that was like how I started. And so when I get far from the pixel, I'm like I'm just less happy. And when I can have the pixel, like Pixel Washer gives me an individual pixel, I kind of want to keep it. Yeah. There's something about me that wants to latch onto it and retain that that purity. Yeah, I remember uh, there was an API I think in in Direct Draw, which is like a Microsoft 2D drawing guy back yeah. in the day. And I or I don't know if it was Direct Draw or not, but anyway, there was a method called Bitblit. Bitblit. Yeah. Uh, and it was essentially like take this rectangle of pixels and put it over here. Yeah. Which is you know that's that's the heart and soul of the Canvas API. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like familiar to me. Yeah. It reminds me of QBasic days and old Windows programming C plus plus days and very familiar. Yeah, and and Unity as much as I like it, I think it's a good tool. It's it doesn't feel really familiar to me. It's, it's kind of foreign to me to have all these nice bells and whistles, if I'm being honest. I almost feel like I don't deserve this. <laughs> I deserve Fork and a knife. What am I going to do with these? Yeah, I'll just use my fist to eat my food. Uh, well, there's at least a few more topics we could uh, podcast about. 250 more episodes would be easy to do. <laughs> Next time on Make the Game. With Matt Hackett. And Jeff Blair. And Jeff Blair. I love it. All right, well, thanks for being here, dude. Thanks for having me. Ship it? Yeah! <laughs> All right, that's just two videos that Jeff recommends, so you gotta check them out. That's Overwatch Gameplay Architecture and Netcode by Timothy Ford, and Clean Code Horrible Performance by Casey Muratori. As always, you can find links to everything at Vladria.com. Tell your LostCast friends about this episode. If it gets more listens than normal, I might be able to talk Jeff into coming back. To follow Jeff and his work, see his personal website, jeffblair.com. 